Grace flows downhill. Grace flows downhill. That's the sermon title, and it's also the big idea of our sermon today. And it comes from a Presbyterian pastor and theology professor at Westminster Theological Seminary. His name was Jack Miller. Jack Miller died in 1996, but this is something that he was fond of saying once he rediscovered the power of the gospel for the believer in Jesus Christ. And Jack Miller is the one, by the way, who penned the phrase, preach the gospel to yourself. In more recent times, Jerry Bridges has made that popular in his books, but Jack Miller is the guy who penned the phrase, preach the gospel to yourself. And Jack Miller is the one, perhaps more than anyone else that I know, who has helped me to understand what it means to preach the gospel to yourself, or as we like to say around here at Grace, to rehearse the gospel. Jack Miller has had a profound impact on my life and ministry in understanding what it means to be a son, to be adopted into God's family, that I am free and I am no longer a slave. In his book, The Heart of a Servant Leader, Jack Miller said this, grace flows downhill. It runs down from the heights of God to the humble at the foot of the mountain. Grace also takes away fear and reveals the mighty, tender, compassionate securities of God. As you humble yourself, you will find fears fading away like the morning mist. Believe, only believe. Grace flows downhill. And that is precisely Precisely Peter's point in the passage before us today. Grace flows downhill. It cooperates with gravity. It moves south. Grace goes down. Grace flows downhill to humble sinners. Grace resides. Grace lives at the bottom. And it flows downhill to the humble. So what we have in our passage today is the coming together of grace and humility. So open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to 1 Peter chapter 5. And while you're turning there, uh, I want to let you know, Lord willing, this week and next week will be our last time in 1 Peter. And then, Lord willing, I think we'll pick up where we left off two years ago in the Psalms. And we'll just pick up with Psalm 13 and see how far we get until the fall. So... That's kind of where we're headed, Lord willing. First Peter chapter five, though, look at verses one through two and hear the word of the gracious God that loves sinners. Peter says this, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. In light of the sufferings that these churches are facing because of the gospel, because they are disciples of Jesus Christ, in light of the fact that people hate them with all of their guts because they love Jesus with all of their heart, Peter now calls on the elders of the church to shepherd and to care for these suffering believers. And Peter identifies himself as a shepherd, as an elder or a pastor. And that's what an elder is in a church body. 
An elder is a pastor. An elder is a shepherd. An elder is a biblically qualified man who meets the qualifications of 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. An elder is not a savvy, successful businessman who is well-known in the community. That's not an elder. An elder is a godly man, a humble man, a mature, godly Christian man who needs Jesus Christ just as much as everyone else in the church, but who also has been called by God to help lead and guide and correct and feed and pastor and shepherd God's church. So elders are God's plan for leading his church. And that's why we are an elder-led church here at Grace. And that's why I have listed our current elders on your sermon notes page. I want you to know who we are. I want you to know our names. I want you to pray for us. I want you to get to know us, to invite us out to coffee, to seek out our wisdom. So let us shepherd you by getting to know us. We'll talk more about elders in a moment, but let me point out two things first. Notice first in the passage here where Peter's identity is found. He says he is a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Peter's identity is wrapped up in Jesus Peter's identity is rooted in the gospel and rooted in what Jesus has done for him and not what Peter has done for Jesus. You see that there. His identity is wrapped up in what Jesus has done for him, not what he has done for Jesus in his ministry. So grace has humbled him. It's not the Apostle Peter show. Grace has humbled him. Peter. Now, Peter could have said something like this. Hey, church elders, shepherd the flock. Hey, church elders, you should listen to my exhortation because I am Peter, the mega church pastor. I preached my first sermon ever in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 people got saved at my very first sermon. And I was a mega church pastor overnight. Then a few days later, I preached a sermon in Solomon's portico, and after my second sermon, the church grew to 5,000, and that was just counting the men at church. If you include the women and children, the church was about fifteen to 20,000 members after my second sermon. Honestly, there were so many people, we couldn't count them all. So elders, listen to my exhortation. I'm Peter, the mega church pastor. Oh, and another reason you should listen to me is because I walked on water. No one else has done that but me and Jesus. So you should listen to me. And I was with Jesus when he was transfigured on the mountain in Mark chapter 9, and I saw Moses and Elijah with my own eyes. So listen to my exhortation, elders, because I'm a pretty important leader in the kingdom of God. I write books I speak at conferences. You can listen to my sermons on radio stations all over the country. I've got 10.2 million followers on Twitter. I'm kind of a big deal, elders, so listen up. Now, Peter doesn't say any of that here, although he could have. 
Peter's identity is not wrapped up in what he has done for Jesus, what he does for Jesus. His identity is found in what Jesus Christ has done for him. Peter is humbled by the gospel. He's just a fellow elder, a witness of the sufferings of Jesus, and one who will partake and enjoy God's glory for eternity. Grace has humbled Peter. But oh, what a temptation it is for us to find our identity in what we do for God. What a temptation it is for Christians, for disciples, to find their identity in what they do for God. And it looks something like this. I'm a pastor I'm a big deal in my denomination. Or I'm the missions guy. Everybody knows that I love missions. I'm the guy that's passionate about missions at church. Or I'm the prayer warrior lady. Everybody knows that I'm the only person who really believes in prayer. Or I'm the social justice guy at church. Or I'm the Bible lady. Everybody knows I spend at least three hours a day reading God's word. How easy it is for us to find our identity in what we do for God. And honestly, I don't think God's impressed with us. I don't think he's impressed with us one bit. If you start January 1 Bible reading and you make it through Leviticus, I don't think God's up there saying, Jesus, look, they made it through Leviticus. I don't think he's impressed with us at all. He's impressed with his son. I don't think Peter would be impressed with us either. Peter could have handed us an impressive resume here, but he simply says that he is a fellow elder, a witness of the suffering, a witness of the brutal, bloody death of Jesus Christ, and one who will partake of and enjoy God's glory for all of eternity. So the takeaway is this. Find your hope. Find your identity, who you are, not in what you do for God, but in what Jesus Christ has done for you. That's a sign of humility. That's a sign that grace has flowed down and has washed over you. That's a sign that you aren't impressed with your own PR. That's a sign that the gospel has seeped down and gotten into your pores. The second thing to notice is notice the humility of Jesus. Peter says he was a witness to the sufferings of Christ. That's a sign of grace and humility. Jesus suffered. Jesus died for sinners. That's grace. That is unmerited favor. That's proof that God just can't keep himself away from sinners. He sent his son to redeem sinners and rebels and lawbreakers. That's how much God loves sinners. He sent his one and only son to redeem them. And what humility Jesus showed in securing our redemption. Paul says it like this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What humility. What grace. Jesus 
died for sinners. Jesus is proof that grace flows downhill. And grace flowed down to us in the incarnation. Grace flowed down to us in the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man, fully God, fully man, with those two natures united together in one person. Grace flowed down to undeserving sinners like us. Jesus is living proof that God does not hoard grace. And that's why Peter roots his identity in Jesus. And that's why Peter mentions the sufferings of Jesus here. To motivate these church elders to humble themselves, lay down their lives, and serve the people in their churches. Look at verse 2. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So what does it mean to shepherd the flock of God? What does Peter have in mind when he calls on the church elders to shepherd the flock that is under their care? Well, there are many aspects to being an elder or being a pastor. You shepherd, you care for, you protect, you lead, you guide, you instruct, you pray for the church. But I think the main way that elders shepherd the church body, and I think it's what Peter has in mind here, is feeding the flock with the word of God. Elders teach God's word. We share God's word. We help protect Doctrine, pure doctrine, theology, we feed the flock with God's word. And the reason why I think that is specifically what Peter has in mind here is because, one, Peter is writing to a suffering people. They're suffering because they are in union with Jesus Christ, because they're disciples. So they have doubts, they have cares, they are stressed out about what's happening in their life, and they need their elders and their pastors to come alongside them and feed them the gospel. Second reason I think Peter's specifically talking about elders feeding the church body with the word of God is remember what Jesus told Peter in the gospel of John after the resurrection. Three times Jesus told Peter, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. This is the heartbeat of pastoral ministry, the heartbeat of being an elder, feeding God's people God's word. That's the heartbeat of being an elder. It's the heartbeat of being a pastor, feeding God's people God's word. As Martin Luther said in his commentary on this passage, Therefore, to feed them, that's the church, to feed them is nothing else but to preach the gospel, whereby souls are nourished, made fat and fruitful, since the sheep thrive upon the gospel and the word of God. Let me read that again. Therefore, to feed them is nothing else but to preach the gospel, whereby souls are nourished, made fat and fruitful, since the sheep thrive upon the gospel and the word of God. Elders are called to dish out, to serve up the gospel to the church. Elders are called to make the sheep fat with gospel promises. Elders are called to make you fat with the gospel. So pray for us that we do that. Pray for the elders of grace that we would make y'all fat. Pray that we would fatten y'all up with the gospel. And that would be a great book title, wouldn't it? I might write a book called Getting Fat with the Gospel. 
subtitle, A Manual for Elders and Pastors to Help Sheep Thrive Upon the Word of God. That's an elder's job description, a pastor's job description, to make God's people fat with gospel promises. So pray for your elders that we would feed you the word of God and then do your part by not being a picky eater. Which means you do your best to be taught. You do your best to be humble, to receive the instruction and not to say, that's not how I interpret that verse. He's wrong. But to humble yourself and say, I want to be fed by my pastors and elders. I don't want to be a picky eater. You show up on a Sunday and you hear the word of God preached. You get involved in a Sunday school class or a Grace Seminary class. Or you come back for a second sermon on Sunday night at 6 p.m. because you want God's word. Or you get discipled by an elder. Whatever you do, gorge yourself on the gospel. Stuff your face with the word of God, but you have to humble yourself to do that. You have to recognize your need for godly elders. You have to recognize your need for the gospel, and then you have to humble yourself and chow down. And because elders are sinners, because your elders here at Grace are sinners, sometimes we don't want to shepherd you or care for you, or we have the wrong motives in doing these things, which is why Peter says what he says next. And remember, Peter was an elder too. He knew the struggle was real. So he says this to the elders. Look again at verse two. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I call these the knots and butts of being an elder or a pastor. Peter will spell out the nuts and bolts, the knots and butts of being an elder and a pastor. And he says the elders are called to shepherd God's church by one, exercising oversight and watching over the church. And that we're called to do this willingly, not under compulsion. Elders should remember that this is why God called us to this position. Elders should remember that one of the ways that God cares for his church is through elders. Elders should love the gospel so much that they want to share it with others so that others would see and savor Jesus Christ the way the elders do. Elders are called to shepherd, Peter says, eagerly and not for shameful gain. Peter probably has in mind pastors or elders who are paid by the church. And he's saying, don't just slip into thinking that this is just your job, that you get the paycheck. Don't do it for gain. Don't just do it for the paycheck. But eagerly want to care for and feed the sheep so that they get the gospel. And then he says elders are called to shepherd, not by being domineering and controlling and abusive, but to be an example to the flock. This doesn't mean that elders are perfect. Like, we're the best example. Look at us. We're not saying that because only Jesus is perfect. He's the example. What it means is that we show people how to run back to the gospel when they blow it. 
Understand this, the elders and pastors here are sinners. We sin every day. We are not perfect. We make bad decisions in our personal life. We make bad decisions on behalf of the church. We make mistakes. We sin. We are not your answer. We are not your savior. We're here to point you to Jesus, to be an example of how you preach the gospel to yourself. Elders are simply under shepherds. We are under Jesus, the great shepherd. And Peter wants to encourage the elders because he knows that pastoral ministry and being an elder is hard. Peter tells them in verse four that when Jesus, the great shepherd, returns, elders will receive the crown of glory. This means then that the office of an elder and pastor is so great that it cannot be rewarded here. Because elders are God's way of leading his church. Because the work is so great. Because the work is so hard. Because the work is so difficult. Then it cannot be rewarded here. So please pray for your elders grace. We need God's grace. But this passage is not just for elders. Peter is talking about grace and humility, so he has more instruction for the rest of the church. Look at verse five. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Peter now calls the entire church to humility. And there's debate in the commentaries about what the phrase you who are younger Means Some say it's a reference to younger people. Some say it's in contrast to the elders, meaning you have the elders and then the younger or the rest of the church body who are not elders. And I don't think there's a reason you have to pick one. I think it can be both. I think Peter is one calling on young people to submit to their elders, but he's also calling on the whole church to submit to her leaders. In fact, he says that in the verse. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. That's all of us. The church is called to submit to its elders and pastors and their decisions and what they say, where the church is going, what we're doing. We're called to submit. But the whole church also, including pastors and elders, is called to clothe ourselves with humility. And the imagery that Peter has in mind here is one that made a significant impact on him because the word for clothe yourselves has to do with tying on a garment, probably a servant's garment or the slave's garment. And Peter witnessed Jesus do this in John 13 when Jesus washed his disciples' feet. John says that Jesus removed his outer garment and he put on the slave's towel, the slave's garment that he wrapped around his body and washed their feet and then dried their feet with that garment. That's what Peter wants for these churches, for these disciples. He wants everyone in the church to be so moved by the gospel, to have their identity so wrapped up in Jesus that they humble themselves and they serve one another. He wants them essentially to put on the apron of a slave, to clothe themselves with humility. And what reason does Peter give in verse five for why churches should clothe themselves with humility? The answer is this, because God opposes the proud. 
The Greek word opposes is a military word. It means that God will set himself up and arrange himself in this military fashion like an army marching toward their enemies. That's not good when God assumes an army position against you. That's how God responds to pride. He goes to war with the prideful. Why does God hate pride so much? I think C.J. Mahaney says it best in his book, Humility. He says, pride not only appears to be the earliest sin, but it is at the core of all sin. Pride, John Stott writes, is more than the first of the seven deadly sins. It is itself the essence of all sin. Indeed, from God's perspective, pride seems to be the most serious sin. From my study, I'm convinced there's nothing God hates more than this. Why does God hate pride so passionately? Here's why. Pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon him. Do you know why God hates pride, Grace? Because pride says this. I challenge you. I, a mere mortal, I challenge you, sovereign Lord of the universe, I challenge you to do battle with me. So let's put on some gloves, let's hop in the ring, and let's get ready to rumble. That's what pride says. So God resists the proud. God goes to war against the proud. But he is drawn to the humble. Grace is drawn to humility. Do you want to experience God's grace in your life? Then humble yourself. Do you need God's grace in your life? Then humble yourself because God is drawn to humility. But he resists the proud. And that's why Peter says what he says in the next few verses. Look at verses six and seven. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Grace is drawn to humility because the humble person recognizes that they are under the mighty hand of almighty God. God's grace is drawn to the humble because the humble person trusts and rests in God's sovereignty. The truly humble person trusts that God knows what he is doing and therefore they rest in that. So humility says, I don't know what's happening in my life, God. I don't know why things are the way they are. I don't know why everything is out of control. I don't know why my family's a mess. I don't know my, why my life is a mess. I almost said my wife is a mess. I'm the mess in our family. I don't know why things are the way they are, God. I honestly don't know what you are doing and why you are doing it. But I trust you. I rest in your sovereign care. That's humility. And when you can say that, he will lift you up at the proper time. He'll intervene at the right time. And isn't this God? the kind of God that you want to cast your cares on. He is the mighty God, the sovereign God. 
And that means he can intervene whenever he will. So there's no need to worry about things. There's no need to be anxious, even though we all struggle like this at some point. But there is really no need to worry because worry is just a form of pride, right? Worry is a form of pride. Ouch, that stings a little, doesn't it? It stings because we all worry from time to time, don't we? It's just pride. Worry is me acting like I am God. I have to say that again because I need to hear it. Worry is me acting like I am God. Worry is me acting like I am God. Worry is me acting like I could do things better than God in my way and in my time. And that's why we need humility. Because grace, because God is drawn to the humble. When you put your worry to death and you trust and rest in God's sovereignty, then guess what? You get God. You get Jesus. And isn't that who you need the most? Jesus is drawn to humble people. Jesus is drawn to repentant people. As Jack Miller said in a letter to a missionary who was struggling with an illness, he said, may God grant you grace to deepen your repentance. Pray that he will do the same for me. For repentance is just humility. There's the connection. That's why we need humility. That's why we need to be repentant. For repentance is just humility. And humility stands in the low place, not on the mountains of pride. Therefore, humility gets much grace because grace runs downhill. And speaking of her husband, Jack, his wife, Rosemarie Miller, said this in one of his books. Repentance brings us into fellowship with God. And to be near God and to have God near is the whole purpose of human life. As Jack used to say, grace flows downhill. Joy always comes to me as I take the lowest place and look to Jesus for forgiveness and grace. Humility brings God close. Repentance brings Jesus close. And why do we need repentance? Why do we need more repentance in our lives? Because we're sinful, messy, dirty, stinky sheep. The flock of God. We are sheep. We need more repentance because we are sinful, messy, dirty, stinky sheep. That's why we have elders who shepherd the flock of God. Jesus knows that every church flock, every church body, Jesus knows that every church flock would be full of sinful, messy, dirty, stinky sheep. And Jesus knew that every church flock full of sinful, messy, dirty, stinky sheep would need elders and pastors to shepherd them. That's why elders are God's plan for leading his church. And that's why Jesus is our great shepherd. Precisely because we are sinful, messy, dirty, stinky sheep. And because we're sinful, messy, dirty, stinky sheep, we need more repentance. And because we are sheep, it means that things around here will get very messy. And that's precisely why Peter said that we should humble ourselves. Because Peter 
the messy apostle, knows that the reason we don't humble ourselves and open up about our struggles and sins and messiness is because of pride. That's why we don't open up and share our struggles, because of pride. I don't want them thinking that about me. And Peter knows that God hates pride. And Peter knows that when we humble ourselves and put pride and worry to death, then God shows up. We get Jesus when we humble ourselves. That's why Peter talks about humility so much in these verses. Because when we are humble, Jesus shows up. When we go low, we get Jesus. When we humble ourselves, we get Jesus. Jesus is drawn to humble sinners. Grace is drawn to humility. Grace flows downhill. And that's why Peter wants his audience to be humble, so that they get more grace, so that they get Jesus. And that means then if that we want more grace around here at Grace, we're all going to have to humble ourselves. It means that we're going to have to get down off of our theological high horses. It means we quit looking down on other people. It means we start admitting and confessing and repenting of our sin in community with one another. It means that we admit that we are sinners. We've had people leave this church because they said, I don't like being told I'm a sinner. We've had people leave this church because they said, I don't want you or your Sunday school teachers telling my kids that they are sinners. If we want more grace around here, we have to admit that we are sinners, covered with the righteousness of Jesus, but sinners nonetheless. If we want more grace around here, grace, it means that we focus more on our Savior and less on our behavior. It means we focus more on what Jesus has done for us and less on what we must do for him. It means we start praying more like the tax collector in Luke 18. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And we start praying less like the Pharisee in Luke 18. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. In order for grace to flow downhill to us in this church, we have to understand that grace is disseminated in a church community. Our walk with God is a community project. Grace doesn't just come to you and your Bible and Jesus sitting on the beach. That's not where grace shows up. God might help you in that moment because his word is a means of grace, but grace is meant to be lived out in community with one another. Our walk with God is a community project. It involves elders and pastors and deacons and fellow sinners. This place, this flock, this church community is where grace is meant to do its work. And that means that in order for grace to flow downhill to us in this church, We have to embrace the messiness of church life, the messiness of church community. We have to embrace the fact that we don't have it together. We don't. 
And let me say a word to the mothers since it's Mother's Day. And I'm not a Mother's Day sermon kind of guy, but I should at least address the mothers so no mothers email me tomorrow. But let me address the moms. Moms, you have to embrace the fact that you don't have it together. Moms, you have to quit going to Instagram and Facebook and comparing yourself to other moms. Because you see all those pictures on there, and you see the family all together and matching clothing and smiling in the park, and you think, why can't my family be like that? You know what that, you know what that family was like before they took that picture? It was the mom and dad saying, get over here right now. I'm gonna take your iPod away. Stand right here, smile, look good, click. <laughs> they don't show you that. I... I would love it if somebody would put a stream of photos with the mom like, and the dad like, you know. But they don't. We put it up there and we think, oh, I wish our family could be like that. We're not. We're messy. Let me tell you, our family is messy. It is WrestleMania at our house. Moms, don't go there. Don't go and look at the lady who put the picture of her food and said, look at our dinner and it's perfectly and it's all there and it's put together. You didn't see the mom making it. You didn't see her throw the dish at a child because the child took the last of the milk and she needed it for the rest. But you don't see that. Or you get a little snapshot and you say, who am I? Look at them, they have their act together. No one has their act together. I don't have my act together. So not only do we have to embrace the fact that none of us have our act together, we have to embrace the fact that we will always struggle and we have to be okay with that. I'm okay struggling the rest of my life because I'm a sinner and I'm not Jesus. We have to not only embrace the fact that we struggle, but we have to be okay that we do struggle. We are a Romans 7 people clinging to Romans 8, 1. We have to embrace the fact that we're just as needy for Jesus today as we were the day when God adopted us into his family. So let me ask you this morning, is there a mess in your life? Do you have cares? Do you have anxieties? Are you worried about something? Are you stressed out about something this morning? Welcome to normal Christianity, by the way. But are you stressed out about something? I mean, the kind of stressed out where you can't eat anything where you can't think about anything but the thing that stresses you out, where you toss and turn all night in your bed sheets and you don't get any sleep and you start losing weight and you can't do anything, you can't do anything kind of stressed out. Is that you today? Well, let me set you free this morning. You have a father, a heavenly father, and he cares for you and he sent you an invitation and he told me to tell you this, not audibly or literally. It's right there in verse seven casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And part of the way that he cares for you is through your elders and through your pastors. And part of the way that he cares for you is through this church body as you open up about your struggles, about your marriage, about your parenting, as you open up about your concerns, as you open up about your cares, as you open up about your sins. But make no mistake about it, he cares for you. And he has given you an invitation to dump all of your cares on him. And it's the biggest proof of his love and the biggest proof of his care for you is that he sent his son, Jesus. That's when grace flowed down. That's the pinnacle of grace flowing down to us. That's grace the giving of his one and only son 
for us. So as we close today, trust him. Rest in him. Look to Jesus and cast all of your cares on him. And he will lift you up in due time in his time. And as we close, let's come back to something I read earlier that Jack Miller said because it's very similar to what Peter says in verses six through seven. Grace flows downhill. It runs down from the heights of God to the humble at the foot of the mountain. Grace also takes away fear and reveals the mighty, tender, compassionate securities of God. As you humble yourself, you will find fears fading away like the morning mist. Believe, only believe. Humble yourself today. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and it will take away fear. Humble yourself and you will find your fear fading away. Grace does that. Believe, only believe. Let's humble ourselves now and pray. Father, we do humble ourselves. We admit that we're needy. We admit that we're messy. We admit that we struggle. We admit that we sin. We admit that we choose sin over you all the time. So God, we just humble ourselves and say, here you go, here's my cares, here's my concerns, here's my frustrations, here's my anxieties. And we say thank you for caring for us. May we learn to open up to one another in the church body, to understand that you care for us through elders, through pastors, through deacons, and through the rest of the church body. Do it for our sake, and do it for the glory of your son. In Jesus' name, amen.